that sort of turned into a three-week ordeal. Why? Why? Why did I let that happen? <laughs> well, the bottom line is this. The bottom line is that according to the World Health Organization, in the year 2019, it just ended, over 42 million human beings were killed prior to their birth. That is double the total number killed on the battlefields of World War I. That's just an average year. It's, it's daily in the world, it's daily more people than died in 9-11. It's a 9-11 every day, and just in terms of casualty count. So it behooves us as Christian people, it behooves us as followers of Christ who are called and sent into the world during these times that we live in, it behooves us to understand why. It behooves me to see how many times I can say behooves. But it behooves us to understand why. Why is this? So, a psalm, you say, here's a psalm for today. Got a psalm for you, all right. Yes, you know it. In fact, you almost expect it if, um, if there's going to be a discussion in a church or a, pre or a sermon or a teaching on Abortion, you very well might understand it, the pro-life sermon. Oh, there's like two or three passages we're probably going to do. We hadn't done it yet, and I was just sort of waiting. But we talked about Romans and some other things that I'll actually be going back to from time to time. But, but no, it, it, it remains true. It, it, it maintains its meaning. Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because... I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And I know that full well. Confident um, little poem or hymn of praise to the Creator. In this case, not for the rocks and the mountains and the trees and the ocean and all the creatures and the beasts and so on and so forth. In this case, for, for the miracle of a life. The miracle of a life. So that when during the Advent season, we said, we, we looked at John, not even, not, not toddler John, but baby John. Baby John in womb, who leapt for joy. Right? And why, wait, who, how could he leap unless... Well, well, you know, he was filled with the Spirit. The prophecy said he'd be filled with the Spirit. He didn't. He didn't have to. Uh, he didn't have to get born and get potty trained and start walking before he was filled with the Spirit. Apparently, he left. Why did he leave? Because he was in the presence of someone. Someone, you say? Who was it? Wait, where was he? Ah, you see, this is this is the miracle. It starts before before you can meet. Before you can meet that person. So the psalmist says, fearfully and wonderfully made. But look, that's a theological statement. That statement is loaded with worldview beliefs, is it not? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm, I, am, I am making declarations about the world and about God and about reality when I say that. But what if, what if someone doesn't believe that? And so we talked... Then, for a couple of weeks we, we did this, we talked about the definition, 
Just to be clear, what, are we, what is it we're discussing here? This is the killing of human beings before birth. I mentioned that there's a fundamental moral principle that we have to consider. It's a biblical principle, and it, but even if you, even those the Gentiles, as Paul says, who don't have the law, they know this too. They know that to take a human life is a serious thing, so that if there would ever be an occasion where you're justified to take a human life, the reasons better be good. The reasons had better be good. That's a fundamental bedrock moral principle for all people in all cultures, that it's no small thing just to take a human life. It, there, there would be rare and narrow instances where you can do that sort of thing, and, and your justification had better be pretty high for it. And so then we turned and we said, well, then what about the justification for this, this circumstance of these taking, of these lives? What are, what are the possible moral justifications that might exist for this? And in that sense, I, I turned your attention to some of the main reasons. You'll probably remember this. Uh, it's the same slide I showed you last time. What are the main reasons then uh, why this is happening? And we spent some time only looking at the first one, and then I, that was it. We're going to look at the others now. But remember, this is globally speaking. And in the world today, one of, one of the reasons, and this accounts for millions of abortions, is sex-selective abortions. Our India travelers might be familiar with this, having freshly come from one of the places in the world where that practice has been ongoing for some years to the detriment of the population, which is now quite lopsided. And same in China. That's one reason for it that accounts for a number of them. But I want to talk about a few others that have accounted for this so we get the picture. And so that second one I'll spend a minute on here, eugenics. You might not know the word, but now you do. What does this mean? What are abortions that are motivated by eugenics? Eugenics as a reason for the procedure. The word eugenics just means good genes or a good creation, a good genesis. This is, became the name for a popular movement. Some of you might have read about this. So it goes back to the late 19th century. A guy by the name of Sir Francis Galton, who, by the way, was a cousin of Darwin. This, this idea came to blossom in the aftermath of the, of the pervasiveness of the new idea of Darwinian um, ideas. So that, hmm, if this is how all of it works, why then maybe there are moral implications for us about the future. One of those implications was that genes, hmm, maybe some are good, some bad, maybe the future is better if the good ones win the struggle. So that terms were invented, so that the, um, so that the philosopher and sociologist named Herbert Spencer coined a term that I bet you've heard called survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. Spencer was controversial because he took this seriously enough that he criticized the British poor laws. The British poor laws were basically welfare at the time. He criticized it. Why did he criticize it? Because he, because he just had no compassion? No, he had adopted this new idea that he figured was scientific now. And the notion is for the good of all, for the good of the human race, why would we artificially prop up those who nature would select for 
extinction, those genes ought to be weeded out, good genes ought to be promoted, so if we artificially help those with the poor genes, meaning they're, they don't think as well, maybe they're not as intelligent, they're given to poverty, and, and they're, they're just a struggle with you know uh, substance abuses and, and stuff, stuff like that, all those would, be, would have been thought of as bad traits that we don't want passed on. So we ought not to help them, we ought to let, quote, nature take its course. So in the U.S. there were organizations with names like the Race Betterment Foundation. The Race Betterment Foundation, incidentally headed by the uh, cereal breakfast cereal magnate John Harvey Kellogg and others, there were important people with money behind some of these. They thought they were doing something good. There was a thing called the Pedigree Registry. You see a sign of that here from, uh, uh, from this, uh, ripped out of that paper, Popular Science. Registering human pedigrees. This was to record defects in the population. There were some states that had marriage laws that prohibited procreation by what they called the feeble-minded. In early 20th century California, you know, California likes to lead the way. Well, they did in what's called forced sterilizations. They did this on mental patients first and in poor communities. And by the way, the Supreme Court at the time said that was constitutionally okay. It's okay. Forced sterilization. It wasn't until the 1940s that the court finally overturned that and said, you know, maybe we can't force sterilization on people because we think their genes aren't good enough. So we're just going to force them into being unable to procreate. Part of the reason why... Americans started to sour on the idea was because of what they saw in Germany. Because there were others practicing this, something like this. You know, the Nazis. And uh, led by Dr. Mengele, they were doing their own kind of eugenics. And they sort of took it to new heights, or we probably would say new depths. And that sort of started to turn people away. Well, there were a lot of activists influenced by this movement, the eugenics movement. In 1921, a young lady named Margaret Sanger founded a thing called the American Birth Control League. And on its board of directors were a number of eugenicists and race theorists. One of those on her board was a good friend of hers named Lothrop Stoddard. Can I get a witness for the first name Lothrop? Huh? Lothrop. Um, in his book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, he wrote these words, quote, Just as we isolate bacterial invasions and starve out the bacteria by limiting the area and amount of their food supply, so we can compel an inferior race to remain in its native habitat. Sanger, the young lady who was heading this up, she wrote a legal code that she wanted to become a law. It was a code to limit overpopulation. Her code said this, quote, No woman shall have the legal right to bear a child without a permit. No permit shall be valid for more than one child. You thought that China was the first one to think of a one-child policy? She said that limiting large families was important because large families was the most serious evil of our times, she said. 
the most serious evil of our times. Sanger believed that adults who had drug and alcohol problems or mental illness, who had social and interpersonal problems, who had heart or liver disease, should probably not be allowed to have the permit because they might pass those things on, and those are bad traits. Sanger was invited to speak at a meeting of the women of the Ku Klux Klan, maybe in part because they agreed with what she called her, quote, Negro project, which aimed to get black communities to adopt birth control. She accepted their invitation, she spoke, and she received what she said were, quote, offers from similar groups. In 1942, her American Birth Control League became, it became renamed Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Sanger also started to change the emphasis and couch her programs less in the terms of eugenics and increasingly more in terms of the rights of women. She said, quote, the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty is enforced motherhood. Which is an odd thing to say if you simply know the history of the treatment of women or read world news today about what happens to women all around the globe, to say that the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty is enforced motherhood? Is that the worst thing that happens to women? Well, over time then, this emphasis more on women's rights would, would come to supplant eugenics. Eugenics would be less and less of an emphasis because the public started to increasingly kind of think it wasn't so great anymore to talk about, you know, cleaning up the gene pool. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't still remnants of it. There were still remnants of it. Here's an interesting telegram uh, that Congress received. In 1977, there was a telegram sent to Congress that said that the abortion activity amounted to, quote, this is a quote from the telegram, amounted to, quote, genocide against the black race and added in block letters, all caps, as a matter of conscience, I must oppose the use of federal funds for a policy of killing infants. That telegram was sent by a politically active young guy by the name of Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson sent that. Of course, he would later come to change his views when he sought the Democratic nomination to run for president in the 80s, he no longer thought that way anymore. But of course, this, this idea, though, was, was prominent enough. There was still enough of it around. You know, that same year, by the way, the White House received a letter from one of the co-counsels in the Roe Wade case, Ron Weddington. He was a co-counsel, and he urged the new president-elect, Clinton, he urged him to rush this new drug, the RU486, is called the morning after pill. He said, we need to get this to the market as soon as possible. Listen to his reason why. Quote, you can start by immediately to eliminate the barely educated, unhealthy, and poor segment of our country. No, I'm not advocating some sort of mass extinction of these unfortunate people. Crime, drugs, and disease are already doing that. The problem is that their numbers are not only replaced, but increased by the birth of millions of babies to people who shouldn't have babies. There, I've said it. It's what we all know is true, but we only whisper it. 
Because as liberals who believe in individual rights, we view any program which might treat the disadvantaged as discriminatory as mean-spirited. The co-counsel for Roe Wade was basically saying, he, by the way, he later goes on to say in that letter, we've lost a lot of ground during the Reagan-Bush years. We've got to make up for it. We lost ground and, and people have been procreating, making babies who shouldn't have been, and we've got to put a stop, we've got to curb this activity. So what some of the old eugenicists used to refer to with terms like, they would use terms like useless bread gobblers, <laughs> really derogatory terms, they would then say, you know, unfortunate people, people whose lives are, are not optimal, people who will not uh, live the best kind of lives, in some ways it's sort of compassionate. Um, this was an, this was, there was a lot of honesty here. By the way, in that year, 1992, um, that same year, 1992, as that previous letter, um, the writer Nicholas von Hoffman made the same, same case in the Philadelphia Inquirer. He said, quote, Free, cheap abortion is a policy of social defense to save ourselves from being murdered in our beds and on the streets. We should do everything possible to encourage pregnant women who don't want their baby to get rid of the thing before it turns into a monster. End quote. My point is, there's even in the 1990s, you still have traces of the old eugenics reason. Still in there. Still some of the old eugenics in there. The idea that, you know, it's not so much, it's a little bit of overpopulation alarm, too many mouths to feed, preventing the existence of future criminals. The, the, you know, we got to purify the gene pool and prevent too many of the, quote, unfit. That word is no longer used, unfit. Now you might say, well, what what is the upshot of that? How do we... What effect does that thinking have? Do people still think this way? Well, there are some realistic consequences if you think in this way. So in 2018, there was an article in Psychology Today titled, Iceland, quote, cures Down syndrome. And they put the word cures in quotes. You probably can guess why they put it in quotes. They didn't mean that it was really cured. They meant that it's been, quote, sort of taken care of. They're, Iceland is managing not to have to deal with Downs people in their society. Not because they cured it exactly. The numbers suggest that in Iceland, of those women who get pre-screening tests, and most of them do, that show a propensity for Down syndrome, nearly 100% abort. The termination rate in Denmark, they say, is about 98%. In the U.S., they say it's about 67%. In France, by the way, where the kill rate is about 80%, there was this ad a few years ago that was meant to advocate for Down's people. This was released on World Down Syndrome Day. World Down Syndrome Day. This is supposed to kind of advocate for people with Down Syndrome. This advertisement that World Down Syndrome Day people made, what it did is it just showed a lot of happy, smiling people who have Down Syndrome of various ages. And it basically just had them saying, hey, I like my life. I have a good life. I'm happy. 
That ad was banned from French television by the Council of State because they said it could, and I quote, disturb the conscience of women who had made the choice to terminate Down's pregnancies. We can't disturb their conscience by showing them images of happy people with Down syndrome. Why, the guilt might might get them. So they banned the ad. Do you think, just guessing, we don't watch French TV, but just a wild guess, these days, do you think that there's a whole lot of content that the French would be offended by morally and not put on their TVs? Do you think there are a bunch of Puritans who are real careful about how they, how they, you know, you think they've got a whole, a whole lot of censorship about moral content on French TV? No, I'm pretty sure the I'm pretty sure the French are willing to put on their TVs, you know, I mean, prob- they're probably more loose than we are in the U.S. even about what they allow on their TVs, but that showing, you know, a two-minute ad with showing happy, smiling Downs people who enjoy their lives. That's too offensive. Remember, remember the passage in Romans that we did last week. Remember the idea here, the suppression of knowledge because of what? Deep-seated guilt. This is the same for the uproars we get about theaters. You know, someone makes a movie and the movie has kind of a pro-life message. Remember the movie Unplanned? Some of these movies, October Baby, I think there have been a couple of these. They do pretty well. They're not too hardcore about it, but they, they certainly take that point of view. And there are theaters and places that can't show it, won't show it. There was a Canadian guy, he had, a, he had sort of a second-run theater, like a dollar movie type thing. He gets the movies ever. He just wants to make money. And he put it on. This is in Edmonton. He wanted to show that movie unplanned. There was an, outro- an outcry, an outrage, and people picketed, and he got all kinds of pressure. You can't put that movie on. And he said, you know, I don't really even care about this issue. I, I just know that that movie makes some, made some money and I'd like to show it for a while because I want to make some money. But they said, no, you can't put that on here. Too offensive. Also, the similar for the, the kind of rabid opposition that you get to ultrasounds. Uh, there are a lot of people that do not want ultrasounds in clinics. Why not? What's wrong with simply showing this? Well, as we said, As Paul said long ago, the conscience fights against us. We try to tamp it down. We try to hide from it. We try to press it, mute it, silence it. But it keeps on. It's the old telltale heart. right? It just keeps on pounding away. And we don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to know it. And also, you know, when it comes to this issue of, well, who's going to live a good life? Where is the line to be drawn for which persons would not be desirable, whose life would not be worth living? Where is that line drawn? So in other words, if we read that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, does that mean you're wonderfully made, you know, if you're going to be very smart, physically attractive, athletically gifted, very sociable, very likable, and in a family with good means financially and great opportunities, then you are wonderfully made and we celebrate you. You see, no life is perfect. If I mean, I could find reasons why any given person 
I could make a case that, boy, they're going to go through a hardship. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it's best they just never, maybe if we just take them out now, prevent them from living past the earliest stage. Because after all, five years down the line, ten years down the line, twenty years down the line, somewhere down the line, they're going to suffer in this life. Well, everyone's going to suffer in this life. Nobody's going to have it all and be perfect. There will always be deficiencies that people have. You know, Job said this at one point, would that I had never been born. But come on, cut the guy a little slack given what he was going through. And even he in the end didn't mean it. If he asked him afterwards, he would have said, no, that's not my, that is not my philosophical moral stance. That was just me, that was just me lashing out trying to cope with the suffering I was in the middle of at the moment. So you see the slope that you could get on if you're not careful. Who is going to who gets to screen everyone? Who gets to decide? No, their life will be too hard. Let's just nip it in the bud. See how we can take something and turn it into something compassionate. That's the, those are the kind of tricks we play on our on ourselves and on others to try to flip it around. No, see we're doing something good. But those doubts people in that ad, I don't think any of them would have said I, that you know you would have been doing me a great favor had you killed me early. I don't think they would have said that. They all seem like they're pretty happy to, to, you know, to be alive. Look, any of them might wish, might wish that they had different features and abilities and not the challenges they face. But do they wish you to just kill them early? I mean, I don't think you'd find any to say that. So it's a, it's a, so the business of eugenics goes back to some very corrupt ideas. Man puts himself in the position of God to make the, the sort of sovereign decisions over life and death. And it is simply not our place. Well, since there is no time, I, was, I will briefly mention then the last two, which we can actually mention together. So here's your list again. What about these reasons, these last two? Well, today you won't hear a lot about eugenics. It's still there. But there's something else going on for the most part. It really never gets said, but everyone kind of knows it. These last two reasons we can kind of put together. And they're just part of a greater trend that has moved the advocates for abortion to really an extreme position. An extreme position. You know, the push now is for unfettered access. No questions. Uh, it's abortion on demand for any reason at any time, right up to the moment of birth, and it should be free. It shouldn't even have to pay. Perhaps, perhaps a little bit after. In the case of some, in the case of some. New York passed a law recently, and others are trying to, that basically says no restrictions, none, none at all. Abortion, for any reason you choose, right up to the moment, or for no reason. In fact, if you just wanted to play a game called flip a coin, if, if someone just, if a couple, or, you know, if people just sort of living a, living a sort of a freewheeling lifestyle, just decide... You know, um, I will. There, there will be conceptions, but whenever there is one, uh, you know, we'll just 
We'll do, it's a, we'll do a coin toss game. Heads it lives, tail it, tails it dies. According to that new law, that's perfectly good enough reason. You could, do, you could do coin flips at the ninth month if you want. Because no questions asked. Any reason or no reason. And the taxpayers will foot that bill. Why so extreme, I wonder? That's it. See, why, why the zeal for this absolute freedom to do this? Is it based on a principled position or a moral argument about the unborn? Is it simply a health care issue? Of course not. It's not about that. There's something else going on here. It's never admitted much, right? People just never say this, but well, you know, why should we just beat around the bush here? This is so obvious. Some, a few people have the guts to write about it. So a guy named Anthony Esselin writes a lot of things. He wrote a recent article on why our culture still accepts abortion. I think he's close to it here. Here's what he says. I'll quote him. Quote, it is indeed important to study the pro-abortion argument. It is indeed, it is even more important to consider why studying those arguments and refuting them has not worked. For we have studied them and refuted them. We have all the arguments and evidence on our side. We have known for well over a century that the conceptus is human in kind, alive, self-organizing. We have known that it is not part of the mother, but an independent life, relying on the mother for shelter and nourishment. We have known that it is not a parasite, like a tapeworm. We have known that it is not an invader. We have known that it is never medically indicated to kill a late-term child rather than deliver it by C-section. We have made the moral arguments to distinguish abortion from medically necessary procedures that save a mother's life. We have met the objection that we care only for the life of the newborn and not for the mother by establishing and funding all kinds of crisis pregnancy centers, which the pro-abortion people have tried hard to shut down in many cases. Also homes for unwed mothers and adoption agencies. He says we've done all of this and we've made the case and it seems clear when you simply look at it. But then he says, so, what's the, so what gives? What's the story? And I think he gets to it. He basically says, the thing about abortion in our time, and we just can't deny it, is that it's not about something like health care or family planning. The great majority in our culture are really, are really part of a, the sexual autonomy that people have adopted now so that their lifestyle might be free of all possible consequences. That's what this is about. It's simply a part of the ongoing sexual revolution. That's why there's a zeal for it. Not just a, well, you know, it's unfortunate that it must happen sometimes, but we need to allow the possibility that it might, and it's a serious matter, and so on. That's not the way it's looked at by so many people today. When New York passed that law I just mentioned, it was not a somber passing of a law. You might have seen the footage. There might as well have been fireworks in a marching band. It was to cheers. As if the Emancipation Proclamation had just been passed. You know, like something wonderful had just been legislated. Yay! There was, um, there was someone won an award, I think a Golden Globe not long ago, a younger uh, actress, and she said... 
in her speech, she said, you know, I couldn't be here and I couldn't have been successful and I couldn't have achieved this without the wonderful right that I had and that I exercised that right. Yes, this right. And she said, and, and she literally said, and so thank God for it. And guess what the people did? They applauded. They were so thrilled for her. Good for you. That's the, that's the thing that gives us, gives us an indication that there's something strange at work here. Because I, it's one thing if I dropped out of a spaceship and I didn't know this culture. It would be one thing if I said, hmm, yes, they sometimes think there is a need to do this. It's kind of a gory procedure. It ends a human life in the room. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, it's a little bit disturbing, but from time to time... There might be a case for it, and so they say, okay, but that's not what you encounter. I would not know what to do with the idea that we make it almost a, a celebrated ritual, almost a sacrament that we observe, you know, so that it's number one on the list. If you said, what are the freedoms you treasure most? Many of us would say, well, you know, hey, my freedom to think how I want, believe what I want, freedom of speech, my freedom to worship. Aren't those great freedoms? Well, the founders thought so. We still think so. But for some people today, those aren't so great. Those take a back seat. But my, my sexual lifestyle liberties, my freedoms, and the, and the freedom to have easy, paid for, no question access to as many abortions as I want, is part of that freedom. Because the bottom line is, if I don't have that, that changes, that changes my lifestyle. Because it certainly would, wouldn't it? People could not live the way they, many people currently live today were it not for that. But the knowledge that that's there, easily. And by the way, this is not just on, this is not just on women. There are large numbers of men who, with, with, this, with this depraved outlook. And they're, they're back there applauding as loud as anyone. Because they like to be able to to utilize women in the ways they do in their, quote, social and dating lives, free of consequences. See, men who thought like them in former times had, had, to, be the, had to have the sober realization in their minds that, you know, things have consequences. Anything where you remove the restraints and the consequences, what do you think happens? What happens if we say crime X is no longer... Punishable by law. Do you think crime X will increase? I know it will. Because there are some who, who are only kept in check because they fear the consequences. And, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a guardrail. You see what I mean? So nature itself has a guardrail by design, by creation, that, that babies are made this way. But if we say that's off the table... We remove the guardrails. And so now, many men, every bit as much as women, maybe more so, even if they do it secretly, can cheer for this. Not because they have any views about the unborn or the moral... No, just because they like this lifestyle. They want their depravity unchecked and unchained. They want it to run free. And that's where we live. Now that sounds, oh, that just sounds unsavory. I don't really hear people say that very much. But how can we just not be honest? Are we, are we, are we called to just lie to ourselves? 
And we have to understand things correctly. We have to be wise. Wisdom is a trademark of a disciple. And so is honesty. We have to see things the way they really are. So what do we do? What can we do? Well, look, one thing that I hopefully we've, we've done in these three weeks is we must have understanding. This goes back to Proverbs. Get understanding. It's a commandment. Be wise. So on this issue, be wise. Understand it. What else? What, what else do we do? Well, look, the church is not simply the voice that speaks truth. It is, it is the arms that reach out to people. And so, as we said in week one, we heard from Heather that week, the church also is engaged in getting out there, get, in being among the people. You know, people, people are racked with this kind of guilt. Do you think they're happy? Suppressing guilt, so trying to cope with guilt. They're not, that, that is not a way to live. And so our message, which we take into the world, is the message that frees people from that. They don't have to live that way. They don't have to be slaves to sin and then be slaves to the guilt that piles up on their shoulders because of sin. And they don't have to play games with themselves and pretend things and tell themselves lies. They can be completely free of all that and be made new. And so part of what the church does is we simply herald the gospel. And then, of course, we get active with hands and feet, with money and with time. And and we, we contribute to helping to be involved in those who need the help. We do all of these things because we are the hands and the feet and the mouth. We are the body of Christ.